In all four um, Gospels, the figure of John the Baptist plays prominently, especially at the beginning of the Gospels. He is treated in a, in a slightly different way in the Gospel of John, and that's what the sermon is going to be about today, or the launching point of the sermon. So what I'm reading is a very brief text where John is first introduced in the Gospel of John. It's John 1, 6 through 9. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, as we gather for music and for the hope of Advent and Christmas, may the words we hear in this sermon be used by you and by your Spirit, that they may be the word we need to hear today. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So in recent decades, I've become fascinated with the way different books of the Bible refer to one another, sometimes directly and sometimes indirectly. Within the pages of the Bible are subtle illusion, as well as similarity of characters, names, and events. In much the way as one period of architecture will influence another period, and just as West Side's story recreates Romeo and Juliet, so also the events and characters of the Bible speak to one another across the centuries, and they speak to our own time and culture as well. As I've often taught in my classes, the opening of the Gospel of John draws heavily on the book of Genesis. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, speaks the narrator of Genesis 1. And six to eight hundred years later, the writer of the Gospel of John follows, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Genesis, when God completes the divine work of creation, the narrator declares the heavens and the earth were finished. And a few words later reiterates, on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. In Hebrew, the word finished is a strong word of completion. A word that means utter, absolute, accomplished. Finished marks the end of a unique act of creation. An act entered into and carried out by God alone. An act that places all of the elements of the universe, of human life, of animal life, on the scene for our stewardship and responsibility. The writer of John also picks up on the uniqueness of the word finished when he depicts the last word that Jesus speaks from the cross. It is finished. Utter. Absolute. Accomplished. The end of something unique. Something holy. Something divine. 
In the mind of John the Gospel writer, the crucifixion of Christ is no less significant than the creation of the heavens and the earth. It is finished. Now these parallels have led me to notice another similarity between John and Genesis that may help us understand the role that God intends for us to play in God's created order. In Genesis, the first human beings introduced into the creation narratives and therefore into the Bible are Adam and Eve. In John, the first human being that is introduced in the Gospel of John is John the Baptist. Though in John, he never receives the nomenclature the Baptist added to his name, but he's simply called John. When we meet Adam and Eve, their names simply mean the man and the mother of all living. The narrator of Genesis thus presents them to us as figures representative of all of humanity. They are presented to us that we might see ourselves through them. The narrator also presents them as existing initially in a garden whose name is Eden. The meaning of Eden in Hebrew is fertility, pleasure, delight. Eden has become synonymous with all that is good and beautiful and pleasurable and perfect and painless. It is a place where life is created and it represents the world as God created it, as God intended it to be. And in this garden, there are two trees. The first is the tree of life, a tree that provides no limits on the availability and abundance and wonderment of food. The second is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When God shows the man and woman these two trees, God says, you may, eely, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall become mortal. In the next scene, the serpent, who appears in the story without any introduction or explanation, persuades the woman who in turn persuades the man that if they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will not become mortal, but in fact their eyes will be opened and they will become like God. Knowing all things, knowing good and evil. By eating of the fruit of this tree, they will have exceeded the bounds around which God had set them. They will indeed become like God. Both the woman and the man eat of the fruit, and what immediately follows is that the world becomes the world as we know it, rather than the world as it was created to be. It becomes a world of division within the family, of violence, of conflict, and of pain even in such elemental matters as the bearing of children and the tilling of the soil. It becomes the world with which God starts over through the story of Noah and his family. Yet it remains the world even after that event 
after the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Where human beings cluster together. They seek to build a tower to heaven, again exceeding their limits. And they are scattered across the world. Their language is confused into nations and tribes and races and peoples who cannot communicate with one another, who do not understand one another. Again, at the end of Genesis 11, the world is the world as we know it. Thus, these beginning chapters of Genesis depict the desire on the part of the man and the woman, the human being, the human creature, to know more than what we humans are intended to know, to exceed the limits that God has subjected our knowledge. This lies at the heart of much of what ails us today and much of what leads us to turn to God for redemption. Now, that's Genesis. In contrast to Genesis, the first human being introduced into the Gospel of John is introduced this way. There was a man sent from God whose name is John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. When this man named John speaks for himself a few verses later, He takes great pains to make sure that people do not mistake him for the Christ to whom he has come to bear witness. The first words John speaks in the Gospel of John are, I am not the Messiah. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, the way of the Messiah. John says, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. And I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. And a few chapters later, John says, he must increase. I must decrease. Those are the last words that John the Baptist speaks in the Gospel of John. And believe me, in other Gospels, he's pretty loquacious. So it is clear to me from all this, particularly given the way that John the Gospel writer is playing off from the book of Genesis, that John's intention is to contrast the knowledge that John the Baptist claims With the knowledge that the first man and the first woman seek. In the Gospel of John, John the Baptist does not seek to become like God. He does not seek or claim to know all things. He doesn't seek to exceed the limits of knowledge that God has placed on him as a human being. And placed on all of humanity. As such, in contrast to Adam and Eve, who seek to reach for knowledge that is beyond them to compare. To possess. John is a model of who we are to be 
as human beings. Of what we are to know. And what we are to accept that we do not know. Of what we of how we are to live within the limits of our knowledge in this creaturely role that we have been given. Now there is a long and fancy name in philosophy for acknowledging the limits of our knowledge, for accepting that there are simply some things that will lie beyond our capacity to grasp. This acknowledgement is called epistemic humility. Now, I know we're having children's pageant today, and I know we've got, you know, 70, 80, 90, 100 kids here today. And I just thought I would use that big word to help them get into the, you know, the system. I thought maybe that people could go home and, you know, with glitter engrave that on Christmas ornaments and put them on the tree. Epimistic humility, wouldn't that be good? I mean, what conversations would that start, you know, in your household? But it's a good word. For example, are we willing to admit that we don't exactly know how much we are shaped by our genetic makeup, by our neurological or physiological constitution, by the environment into which we have been born or in which we have been raised, or shaped by something unique and indefinable that has been planted within each of us and must have come from some power beyond ourselves in which, which we may dare to call a soul. Are we willing to acknowledge that we cannot fully explain ever in any religion why bad things happen to good people? Why seemingly every era in human history has been marked by more than one race of people being cruel to another race of people. Why we have never been able to stop the scourge of war, of oppression, of genocide, of hatred within human history. And why it is that some of these things are done in the name of God or inspired by people's understanding of God. On a more personal, day-to-day level, are we willing to acknowledge that many of the decisions that we make in our personal lives in rearing our children, caring for our ailing spouses, or or aging parents and deciding what to do with our lives, what college or military branch to go into, what career to enter, what job to take or decline, are decisions that we make never fully confident that we have all the information. And on a level of citizenship, are we willing to acknowledge that what we think are the right steps for our nation to take in domestic policy and international relations, in matters of war and peace, just might have another view or a different set of supporting facts to interpret that could lead us to a different conclusion? 
Are we ever willing to acknowledge that we just might not know some things that lie beyond the scope of our knowledge? Once we acknowledge that we don't know everything, once we acquire some epistemic humility, we just might be able to have a conversation with people whose views on important matters are different from ours, including within our families. We may be able to try to reach at least some level of common, though admittedly limited, agreement among our friends, in our small communities at work or neighborhood, even among the larger community of nation, its politics, its foreign policy. John's epistemic humility, his awareness of the limits of human knowledge, could lead him to fatalism, to despair, to withdrawal, to going to live in a monastery, to giving up. But John never goes that direction. He never says with Seinfeld, it's about nothing. John never cites Ecclesiastes, what has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Rather, despite knowing the limits of his own knowledge, John is still able to point to Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is still able to fulfill his role as witness. He is simply a witness. John's epistemic humility, his recognition of the limits of human knowledge and of the bounded role we are to play as creatures drives John not away from Christ into despair or indifference, but it drives him toward Christ. John comes with an advent openness that something divine is afoot. The true light which enlightens everyone is coming into the world. Now, as you know, in a few minutes, this service is going to move towards its conclusion as we witness a witness to the gospel. We're going to experience what nearly every gathering of Christians around the world presents at some point in its history during Advent, a Christmas pageant. Now, doubtless our pageant, like all witnesses to Christ, will be flawed. It will occur within the limits of children who put it on and parents and teachers who labor over weeks to choreograph it. No matter how strong the effort and well-behaved the children, no matter how freshly washed the costumes and recently rehearsed the lines, there will doubtless be an errant shepherd's crook that falls and tumbles down the steps. A crown that falls off a head. An angel with fallen wings. A donkey which is too big for its carrier, whose head is too big for its carrier. A Mary and Joseph who may miss their cue and throw the whole plot off. 
An occasional cry of a child that comes from somewhere other than the manger. Every Christmas pageant has a story behind it. And every Christmas pageant has something go wrong. But like John the Baptist, our Christmas pageant will bear witness to something far greater than any of us can hope to understand or to know fully. It will, like John the Baptist, bear witness that the true light is coming into the world. And as flawed and incomplete as that witness shall be, it shall be enough, enough to give us hope because of the source of hope to which it points. Amen.